Hi everybody, I'm Jim Sinecropi with another episode of the Around the Lakes podcast where we take a look at the people and places that make up the fabric of the beautiful Finger Lakes region. And today we're a little something different. Um, we're going to go above the Finger Lakes and actually way up to the stratosphere and beyond. We're going to talk about um, some high altitude uh, balloon launches and a trip that uh, our my guest took to uh, NASA in Cape Canaveral for a SpaceX launch. So it uh, should be an interesting conversation. And I'm joined in studio today with uh, Tori Carissimo, who is the founder of Overlook Horizon uh, High Altitude Balloons, which uh, I've seen some of your videos on YouTube, Tori, but why not explain exactly what that is to our viewers? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me. I'm super excited uh, to be here. Um, yeah, Overlook Horizon, uh, we started about three years ago. We're a, a nonprofit organization that uh, focuses on trying to get students and adults interested in science and technology and running their own science experiments at home or getting more involved with uh, coding or computers, anything like that. Um, and our inspirational platform is high-altitude weather balloons. Uh, it's kind of a weird, uh, weird niche that I got into and that our team got into, but it really encompasses kind of every aspect of science and technology and math and engineering to launch this small package up to the edge of space and then getting it back and knowing that, that you accomplish that is, is kind of a crazy feeling. And we try to get students to uh, have a similar experience. And the thing that I enjoyed most about watching the videos of some of your launches is just the perspective you get you know of not only our region but the earth and kind of the perspective of uh, how kind of small we are down here when you look at us from you know so high above is that uh, something that kind of intrigued you is was the goal for you more just to um say hey i was able to do this or was it to capture that footage that unique footage yeah well the goal originally was just to see could could we do this can you can you launch this thing up into the stratosphere i mean you let it go it's gone for three hours you only see it for about the first five minutes and then just trying to rely on the technology to to work the way it's supposed to so that you can get it back i mean the very first cameras we started with were they were awful like grainy mm -hmm. pictures that came out but we, we sent it up and we were expecting to see kind of the edge of space and black sky but when we got those first images back even with those grainy pictures we're like, oh my god, this is fantastic! Yeah. We need some better cameras. We got to do this some more, and then getting more flights under our belt and, and starting to get more regular with some of them, and then starting to see—I mean, it's a pretty unique region that we're in with all the lakes that you get to see. And when we get up to 100 and, 110 or one hundred twenty thousand feet, to see the entire Finger Lakes region is—it's kind of a, a cool backdrop, other than just kind of land underneath. You know, it's really accented by the the Finger Lakes down below. Yeah, no doubt about that. I mean, seen a lot of aerial photography and in, in, in the recent years, drone photography, but you're taking it to another level, um, you know, higher than airplanes go, higher than, uh, you know, any drone could certainly go. Um, do you have to get any type of clearance with any type, like the FAA, to launch these things? So, yeah, we do work really closely with the FAA. Um, we don't, uh, for the size that we're at, we're actually launching really small payloads. Um, the Weather Service does these twice a day on a regular basis, and for the size that we're at, we don't technically need 
permission because they're not a not an aerial hazard but we do out of uh, an abundance of caution work pretty closely with the FAA um, so we file flight plans ahead of time before we launch them we notify air traffic control we're actually on the phone with them just prior to launch they actively track our flights from launch to landing do they encourage you to do this? Like, do the, we've got a couple of fans at the local, the Rochester uh, FAA office. Mm-hmm. They're pretty. Some of them have seen the photos and videos, and, uh, and they're they're fans of the process. A lot of people interested in the, in the science and technology behind it. We've called. We have to call them when when our flight ends and when it lands. And we've had a couple couple times we call in and we're, we tell them, yeah, it's, it's landed. We're done for the day. And uh, one of the air traffic controllers say, yeah, it looks like it landed in some trees there. Are you going to be able to get it out? So they were following along with the process and we're kind of interested in in what was going on now we're gonna also talk about a trip you took down to florida for a spacex launch recently and um but before we do i just want to i have some more questions about the high altitude balloons so how do you control like why doesn't the balloon just keep going up and you know keep going out of the stratosphere and into outer space what do you how do you make it uh, stop at a certain point and then come back to Earth. Yeah, so we use helium as our lifting gas, but you can also use hydrogen. Kind of the principles are the same, but uh, you're going to fill it in a latex balloon, and in order for the balloon to rise, it has to displace the air around it. And so as it continues to rise, the atmosphere gets thinner, and the balloon has to stretch and get bigger to continue displacing the same amount of air that it once did down by the ground. So it expands the higher up it goes. When we launch it, it's about six feet in diameter. When it gets to the top of the atmosphere, it's about almost 40 feet in diameter. Mm. So it gets huge. These are monster balloons once they get to the top of the atmosphere. Um, but eventually, with all, the, all our balloons, they, they reach their breaking point. So they stretch so much that they just break, and then they burst into a million pieces and then parachute <laughs> back down. Um, so it's kind of a passive control. Um, there, Does how much you preload it with helium depend on Can you calculate how high it will go by how you preload it? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So depending on how much helium you put in, it will affect how quickly it rises, but it also will affect uh, when it bursts. So the more helium you put in, the more uh, pressure there will be on the balloon, so it will burst sooner. The less helium you put in, it will rise slower, but it will have less pressure on it, to, so it will burst later so there's a balancing act there and that's part of the math that we get into (laughs) is there expense to to each launch like do you have to like save up and budget and and then do the launch and yeah we've i mean there's definitely an expense to it i mean but they're not crazy expensive which is why it's a nice science experiment for kids or schools or even a home science uh project because it it can cost on the low end maybe uh four hundred dollars for a launch, including the balloon and the helium mm-hmm. and your electronics and stuff like that. Our launches are a little more expensive than that because um, we put three cameras on board. Um, we have kind of a bigger computer system, and we usually use one of the, kind of the biggest balloons that we can to get yeah. as high as possible. Just like a GoPro camera, or does it have to be something special that will withstand the you know, the atmospheric uh, differences up? Yeah, there are, uh, you can use a GoPro camera. Um, we actually use what we lovingly call faux pro cameras. They're essentially GoPro knockoff cameras. They're they're actually really inexpensive. They cost about thirty dollars on Amazon. So they're nothing crazy that we're using. Do um, they come back to Earth reusable? Or yep, they come back down, 
And uh, I'd say 99% of the time they're reusable. We landed on power lines once, which fried all the cameras. Oh, no. <laughs> but most well, of the time once they're it, Once it's on its way down, you lose total control. You're just tracking it and going to where it goes, right? Yeah, well, pretty much the entire flight is right. we have no active control over it. Mm-hmm. We, do, we run predictions ahead of time, and we pick a launch day and time that, that will match with a flight pattern that gets us to a safe landing area. But the... The landing is really plus or minus, you know, five to ten miles. Wow. There's a lot of trees and buildings and power lines in five to ten miles. So we can roughly control it so we can make sure that it doesn't go into the middle of the city of Rochester or the city sure. of Syracuse. But, you know, whether it lands on this side of the road or that side of the road is it's up to the blue. Or the middle of, you know, one of the lakes or <laughs> Yeah, it's certainly pot we usually try to stay away from those, but that's it's actually not terrible to land in the middle of the lake. That would be relatively easy recovery and mm-hmm. as long as our equipment stays mostly dry we'd be okay everything floats um, but usually the tough ones we've landed i mentioned we landed in power lines once that was that was a tough one um, we've landed in really tall trees way more times than i care to admit yeah those are really hard because you you know exactly where it is and you're <laughs> looking at it but it's 80 feet up and it, getting it down can be a real challenge so There's how would you get those down with, yeah um, we've got uh, we've got some arborist equipment that we can throw chains up to to saw down branches. Right. Um, we've got air powered, um, like they're kind of like potato cannons, but they shoot up fishing line with a weight on the end of them, so oh, that we can yeah. try to wrap it up and pull it down. We've got we're developing a drone with a, a hot wire on it, so that we could fly it up and cut it, cut it down. Um, and then this year, actually, our first flight that's coming up in a couple of weeks, we'll have an onboard cut, uh, cut down system that we can activate with a remote control. So that usually it's the string that gets tangled in a tree, and then if we can uh, trigger it remotely to tell it to cut itself down, that could mm-hmm. save us a little bit of time. Sometimes it can take eight, nine hours just to get it out of a tree. So if there's a uh, science or math or physics teacher somewhere, our uh, school administrator checking this out, um, how can they get in touch with you if they want to get involved in one of the, your next launches or, or have you come in and incorporated? Yeah, so we're pretty active on social media. Um, you know, Twitter, we put out stuff on Twitter and tips and stuff like that uh, at OLHCN for uh, people that, that are looking to get tips on how to do their own weather balloon flights. A lot of times we see other people that do their own flights and we kind of um, retweet tips or ideas that we've seen from them to help people along and then uh, they can always contact us directly on any of our social media or on our website at overlookhorizon.com they can get in touch with us we've got how-to guides to kind of get people started every flight can be different and you can design your own flight but we've kind of got the guides to Mm -hmm. these are the essentials to get started and uh, what what you need to to at least have a successful mission and then you can kind of customize it to your own taste or do something unique so this uh, hobby is, has kind of indicative of more of an interest view in, in all things space exploration and science. Um, and you recently got to attend a SpaceX launch uh, just this last weekend, was it? Uh, yeah, it was a, yeah, a week ago uh, that um, I got back in. In Cape Canaveral for a SpaceX launch as part of the NASA Social Program. Just explain to us uh, what the NASA Social Program is all about. Yeah, so NASA Social is uh, it's an outreach program from NASA where they invite um, basically social media 
communicators or influencers that that have a good social media following and are active that where I follow NASA and I'm pretty in tune with what they're doing and what SpaceX is doing. I'm a, you know, a bit of a space geek, so I, I love that kind of stuff. But some of my followers may not follow it as intently as I do. So the outreach program is really designed to to bring somebody like me or the other uh, 25 or 30 people that they had down at the time to bring us down and we can kind of communicate what NASA is doing, get a little more detailed in the science that's on board the particular mission that they're launching, and then we get a behind-the-scenes tour of some of the NASA facilities that you can't, you can't normally access even if you go down as a, as a visitor to the Space Center. So, it's so a, what was this particular launch uh, event uh, yeah, this for? Was, yeah, this was the SpaceX CRS-17 launch, so it was the 17th commercial resupply launch to the International Space Station. So this is NASA's uh, program for commercial private companies to send supplies and science up to the International Space Station. Now that we don't have the space shuttle program around anymore, they're using companies like uh, like SpaceX to send their cargo dragon up with yeah. supplies what? and stuff like that. So we get to see see the launch and some of the science experiments that they had on board. So what's your feeling on uh, SpaceX? Commer- you know, commercial private entity now kind of supplementing what they're doing at NASA. I mean, for decades, all space exploration was, you know, in the public domain of government, NASA, uh, from, you know, the moon landing straight up through to all the space shuttles. And now recently, it seems like NASA is kind of turning more over to space Elon Musk, uh, SpaceX, and and it's becoming privatized. Um, you know, just your general thoughts on, on if that's a good or bad thing. Yeah, I was I was originally kind of hesitant on it when the the shuttle program was coming to an end because I was you know how can you end the space shuttle like this is awesome. Um, but you know now that I've seen it in the in the works, like I, I really like the idea of it. I mean, they've turned over kind of the. I hate to use the word routine, but I, I don't know of any other word to use, but it's kind of the routineness of spaceflight where they're mm-hmm. launching commercial satellites, they're doing these resupply missions to the space station, and then NASA can kind of take that burden off of themselves, turn it over to the private side where things may work and develop a little quicker, and then NASA can focus on kind of the exploration portion of it, the the stuff that doesn't have a profit that you know, going to, you know, putting people back on the moon or back on Mars. and kind doing of more these for things. just the good of humankind. Right. Um, they can focus on that kind of stuff, the innovative stuff, and the stuff that we've essentially mastered, I guess, right. uh, that's, you know, the, the actual launching of the rockets, uh, they can push onto the private side. But, you know, then you've got companies like SpaceX that are now landing their first stage of the rocket. So they send it up. And they turn around the first stage and land it either on a drone ship or back on land, which is something that was unheard of. Yeah, just know. earlier this year they were able to land, re-land one of the boosters upright. Uh, it was yeah. pretty amazing. But they've also had some setbacks. Uh, I, as a matter of fact, to, just from my general um, experience in you know observing the space program and SpaceX, it seems like there's more setbacks with SpaceX than there perhaps has been in, in the past with NASA. Of course, NASA had some high uh, visibility disasters with the space shuttle, um, with the teacher on board and um, explosion, but uh, it seems like the private side in SpaceX has had their share of setbacks for sure. Yeah, they've they've had a couple of setbacks. I mean, I think some of that comes with 
the speed at which they're trying to innovate. Yeah. Uh, I don't necessarily think it's a, a bad thing. I mean, they've the three kind of big setbacks that they've had, I mean, some of them are for the upcoming commercial pr- crew program where mm-hmm. they're going to be sending astronauts to the space station. They just kind of had a high-profile setback where during one of their tests they had an anomaly on the, the crew capsule. Mm-hmm. But it was during a test. Thankfully, there's nobody on board, and that's kind of what the that's the purpose of their testing program. You'd rather have it be fully tested and sort out those issues on the ground than have something happen to the astronauts. So I think they're able to innovate quickly. Uh, that's, but uh, it's it's been a learning process for them, and that they're just going to continue to get get better at it. Sure, and and another wrinkle, I suppose, with the privatization of um, these types of uh, space activities would be that now they're talking about um, space tourism. You know, within maybe the next five to ten years, for the extremely wealthy, perhaps a chance to you know take a trip to space and back right um and then maybe in our lifetime uh it could be affordable to you know the average joe i mean I, i'm sure it would still cost more than a plane flight to disney <laughs> but um is that something that you know would be something that you would take advantage of if it ever came to within you know reach financially uh, I love the idea of it. I don't know if I'll be the first one on board. No, um, yeah. <laughs> I tell you, I like it. I, I don't even like to fly, so I'll... Yeah, I'll, I'm with you. But, um, but yeah, it's, and it also kind of, you know, to me, shows just, uh, you know, how primitive maybe we still are if we were to go ahead maybe 500 years from now and look back at this time. We always view ourselves as being so advanced with the age of the internet and and um you know everything just seems to be so modern and technology driven nowadays but really um you know if you jump ahead a few hundred years everything's going to look totally different and the stuff that we're talking about now with uh you know space exploration might might be as simple as hopping on a plane to walt disney world right well, that's why one of the things that i think spacex is doing is is good for the space flight industry like they are with the recovering of boosters and some of the fairing, they're, they're trying fairing recoveries. They're trying to lower the cost of getting to space. So if they can lower the cost of getting to space, they're going to have more flights that they can do per year. Um, satellite providers and even NASA themselves will be able to uh, afford operating these flights on a more frequent basis. And then stuff like that can get sorted out so that it, it becomes even more routine than it is maybe even now, where they've had time to find any possible issue that could go wrong so that a space tourism uh, program that may come up in the future would be completely hashed out because they've had so many satellite launches on the same vehicle and with the same provider. Well, we have some photos from your trip, Um, so maybe we'll run through some of these and you can describe uh, to our viewers what we're looking at here. Um, This is after you're actually inside. Um, Where's this? Yeah, this is day one. So the first place they take us to when we get down there is for a press conference. So they kind of treat us like uh, a regular, you know, even though we're social media, they treat us like regular uh, media correspondence a little bit. So the first thing we attend is a press conference where they bring in, they explain what's going on board the flight. This one was up to the space station. So they were explaining mostly the science experiments, the kind of the three big experiments that were going to be on board the flight to the space station. Uh, So there's an orbital carbon observatory they're sending up uh, to measure uh, carbon dioxide levels around the earth. Uh, There is uh, some 
tissue chips on board, which are essentially human tissues that they're sending up, uh, you know, heart tissue, uh, liver tissue, they're going to send up to do disease and drug experiments. Mm -hmm. And then one of the ones that kind of shocked me was a, a group of high school students, high school seniors that were sending up a DNA sequencing test, which I don't, I, I like to think I, I at least <laughs> somewhat of a bright guy, but the stuff that they were talking about was way over my head. And it was unbelievable, the stuff that that these high school seniors are going to be sending up to the space station. Yeah, so what we're looking at here would be the um, where Mission Control would be located, or that's the Vehicle Assembly Building. So okay. that's where the space shuttle was built, the Apollo rockets were built, and that is where the upcoming SLS rocket, that's uh, NASA's new vehicle, is being built in the Vehicle Assembly Building there. So that's basically where they vertically assemble and stack the rockets before they roll them out to the launch And so pen. SpaceX will use this facility for their rocket or? SpaceX does not use this particular facility. That's a NASA-only facility for NASA rockets, uh, but it is a facility that we have we get to go into to kind of see the upcoming SLS rockets and the work that are being done there and, and the historic inside. nature. Yep, that's inside the vehicle assembly building there. So it's kind of a weird juxtaposition where you've got on the outside this kind of world-famous huge building with the NASA logos yeah. and then you walk inside and it's very much an industrial kind of looking building where it's it's all business and they're just there's cranes and there's operators and there's they're they're getting to work in there mm-hmm. what are we looking at here uh, that's one of the Orion I think it's uh, uh, Orion test vehicles there that uh, they were essentially using for stacking practice on top of the SLS Rockets, um, so it's basically a weight simulator, so that the crane operators could uh, could test stacking on top of the upcoming SLS rocket. Okay, and this would be the launch pad. That is, uh, yeah, historic launch pad 39B. Uh, that's basically uh, where the space shuttle was launched from. There were Apollo missions that were launched there, um, and now it's being repurposed for the SLS launch platform. And so you see all the infrastructure that's in place before the rocket even gets up there, the, the piping for all the water suppression systems, all the electrical conduits, uh, the tracks that are there to get the crawler up. That's kind of the, uh, mm-hmm. uh, the section there where the tabs is where the tracks are that the, the crawler uh, rolls up on the pad and then the giant flame trench in the middle where all the exhaust from the, the rocket will head to. Um, so being able to stand up there and knowing that you know there were astronauts that were that walked across this pad to go get up into the either the Apollo rocket or uh, the space shuttle so there were a ton to a ton to see so really going back to the Apollo launches of the 1960s and early 70s um, not too much has changed in terms of actually the mechanics of how we're launching any rocket into space it's still using the same launch pads without too much changes or am i mistaken yeah i mean the the principles are still kind of the same i mean we're we've still got a lot of the infrastructure that we had from the 60s and 70s is still being used um you know they're just being refurbished and maybe updated a little bit with Mm -hmm. you know fiber optic cables now uh, for faster communications and um, you know some of the the things that we've refined over the past couple of decades uh, to kind of to bring those costs down and to uh, to have more redundancy in place 
So this picture, I'm, I'm envisioning the rockets assembled inside the uh, building, and then it just that door opens and it kind of makes its way from there to the launch pad. Yep. That, so that's the vehicle. That's the other side of the vehicle assembly building, and inside that door is the mobile launch platform. Uh, so essentially, they will stack the SLS rocket on top of that platform there on the other side of the tower. Mm-hmm. Uh, that tower has everything, all the connections and everything that the rocket will need to prepare for launch. And then they'll stick it on top of that crawler there, which you're looking at now. Yep. Uh, that crawler will crawl underneath the mobile launch platform, pick it up, and bring it out to 39B. And it take it's only a four-mile journey, but that crawler maxes out at one mile per hour. Oh, it takes them eight hours to bring that pad out there. Uh, and they bring the whole rocket and launch system all the way out there, just inch by inch. <laughs> And here you are inside. What what would this room be? Yeah, that's one of the launch control rooms um, that's uh, from the um, from launch services at NASA that was preparing for the SpaceX flights. Um, so they had kind of the screens up behind me that uh, were all counting down. They had cameras on the pads, and that's where the controllers would sit a couple hours before launch and basically monitor the flights and get ready get ready for launch and that's mm-hmm. yeah, that's another one of those those launch control rooms there um, so it's pretty pretty cool to uh to get in there and see where the people are sitting to get prepared for for actual sure. flight and then when spectators watch these launches they're generally pretty far away right they're, they're across the water and then you know, the shuttle it's almost like there's a bleacher set up but very far away from the rocket itself yeah, there's actually there's a lot of places where you can watch a launch from. I mean, typically the closest you can get is about three miles, which we were at the closest place that you can be um, as a spectator. Mm-hmm. Even as somebody that works there, they can't really get any closer, with the exception of the small crew that's in a bunker close by in case they need to, to get to something. But uh, we were just three miles away, uh, and that's that's about as close as you can get. You, I mean, you you see the rocket go, and then just a second or two later you start to just feel the rumble shake through your whole body and it's a it's an incredible thing to see i mean it's the watching it on tv or on a computer screen is is pretty awesome i watch a lot of rocket launches but seeing it in person just doesn't compare i mean it's like the brightest firework you've ever seen we watched a night launch for this yeah. particular one and it's it's all of a sudden at two o'clock in the morning it's like daylight again yeah, there, there's the rocket right there, right? Yep. So that's uh, that was our viewing site, like right on the edge of the water, um, and then it just it it takes off, and you get a perspective, you know, that you wouldn't normally see where it's um, you get to see kind of the arc that it takes as it launches. So you don't on a computer screen or TV screen, you know, you see it launch, but you don't really see the perspective of kind of the the arch that it takes or the angle that it curves at and you can really see that in person and so we saw launch we saw separation and then we saw them turn the booster around bring it back and land it which is a kind of an incredible thing to to incredible thing to think that we're able to now bring orbital class boosters back and land them on a a ship in the middle of the ocean yeah and that obviously uh, cuts down on the cost for each launch if you when you reuse these things yeah absolutely uh, so engines and boosters and all kinds of stuff that can now be reused that that were just thrown away before well it's extremely uh interesting um and uh fortunate for you to be able to get down there and take that uh to get to see kind of behind the scenes 
And uh, so I'm glad that you could come in and, and spend some time with us uh, to, to tell us about it. Um, just once again, uh, if anyone wants to get in touch with you or see what you do online, I mean, I, I, before you even contacted us, uh, you know, I watched some of your videos online and, uh, you know, I was just like, wow, if, uh, if curious as to exactly what it was or how it, how you were doing it um but really fascinating stuff and um the youtube videos to me are would be the, a great place to start if anybody was interested in uh, learning about what you do yeah definitely i mean we're on pretty much every social media but you can look up overlook horizon on uh, on youtube facebook twitter um, or overlookhorizon.com has links to all our social media and we've got so this is kind of the beginning of our high altitude balloon season usually mm-hmm. we start right about now for the spring and then we do a couple through the spring and the summer when the winds are favorable we could do them in the winter but we're chasing them long distance in the winter sure. time so spring and summer is best for us so we're getting started with our flight season and then we kind of take our little piece of of nasa and run our nasa like missions and we get to pretend that that we're uh, part of the space program up here in new york <laughs> Well, Tori Carissimo, um, thanks for coming in. And uh, once again, just uh, how can some how can someone get into specifically? I think if there's any students or educators that are watching this that might want to, uh, you know, be involved in one of your launches this coming season, how could they best get in touch with you? Yeah, probably the best place is uh, OverlookHorizon.com. Uh, there's a contact us option there, and that that comes right directly to me. So we get students and educators all the time that ask us for tips and questions on how to run their flights or what kind of cameras we use, all that kind of stuff. So definitely contact us through OverlookHorizon.com or uh, probably our mo- our biggest social media channel is is on Twitter at at OLHZN, and we uh, we have lots of lots of tips and uh, with our flights and weather balloons, but we're also sharing a lot of space news and keeping up with the spaceflight world there. All right. Well, appreciate you taking the time to come in and talk to us, and uh, we'll probably have you in again uh, next time you're down in uh, NASA for a launch. Uh, we'd love to hear about it, and um, you know, also keep us posted about you know, your launches this season. We'd love to share some of the videos yeah. uh, with our users. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And thank you for watching. It's been another episode of Around the Lakes. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. Um, We're online at FingerLakes1.com. You can contact the show at contact at FingerLakes1.com. And uh, we'll see you next time around the lakes.